Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Being With Mood podcast. I'm going to continue reading Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. And we continue at Chapter 2, The Terror of Death. Is it not for us to confess that in our civilized attitude towards death, we are once more in living psychologically beyond our means and must reform and give truth its due? Would it not be better to give death the place in actuality and in our thought which properly belongs to it and to yield a little more prominence carefully suppressed? This hardly seems indeed a greater achievement, but rather a backward step. But it has the merit of taking somewhat more into account the true state of affairs. Sigmund Freud. The first thing we have to do with heroism is to lay bare its underside, show what gives human heroics its specific nature and impetus. Here we introduce directly one of the great rediscoveries of modern thought, that of all things that move man, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. After Darwin, the problem of death as an evolutionary one came to the fore, and many thinkers immediately saw that it was a major psychological problem for man. They also very quickly saw what real heroism was about. As Schaller wrote just at the turn of the century, heroism is first and foremost a reflex of the terror of death. We admire most the courage to face death. We give such valor our highest and most constant adoration. It moves us deeply in our hearts because we have doubts about how brave we ourselves would be. When we see a man bravely facing his own extinction, we rehearse the greatest victory we can imagine. And so the hero has been the center of human honor and acclaim since probably the beginning of specifically human evolution. But even before that, our primate ancestors deferred to others who were extra powerful and courageous and ignored those who were cowardly. Man has elevated animal courage into a cult. Anthropological and historical research also began in the 19th century to put together a picture of the heroic since primitive and ancient times. The hero was the man who could go into the spirit world, the world of the dead, and return alive. He had his descendants in the mystery cults of the Eastern Mediterranean, which were cults of death and resurrection. 
the divine hero of each of these cults was one who had come back from the dead. And as we know today from the research into ancient myths and rituals, Christianity itself was a competitor with the mystery cult and won out, among other reasons, because it too featured a healer with supernatural powers who had risen from the dead. The great triumph of Easter is the joyful shout, Christ has risen, an echo of the same joy that the devotees of the mystery cult enacted at their ceremonies of the victory over death. These cults, as G. Stanley Hall so aptly put it, were an attempt to attain, quote, an immunity bath from the greatest evil, death and the dread of it. All historical religions address themselves to this same problem of how to bury the end of life. Religions like Hinduism and Buddhism performed the ingenious trick of pretending not to want to be reborn, which is a sort of negative magic, claiming not to want what you really want most. When philosophy took over from religion, it also took over religion's central problem, and death became the real, quote, muse of philosophy from its beginnings in Greece right through Heidegger and modern existentialism. We already have volumes of work and thought on the subject from religion and philosophy and since Darwin from science itself. The problem is how to make sense out of it. The accumulation of research and opinion on the fear of death is already too large to be dealt with and summarized in any simple way. The revival of interest in death in the last few decades has already alone piled up a formidable literature, and this literature does not point in any single direction. The healthy-minded argument. Healthy-minded persons who maintain that fear of death is not a natural thing for man, that we are not born with it. An increasing number of careful studies on how the actual fear of death develops in the child agree fairly well that that the child has no knowledge of death until about the age of three to five. How could he? It is too abstract an idea, too removed from his experience. He lives in a world that is full of living, acting things, responding to him, amusing him, feeding him. He doesn't know what it means for life to disappear forever, nor theorize where it would go. Only gradually does he recognize that there is a thing called death that takes some people away forever. Very reluctantly, he comes to admit that it sooner or later takes everyone away. But this gradual realization of the inevitability of death can take up until the ninth or tenth year. If the child has no knowledge of an abstract idea like absolute negation, he does not have his own anxieties. He's absolutely dependent on the mother. Experiences loneliness when she is absent, frustration when he is deprived of gratification, irritation at hunger and discomfort, and so on. If he were abandoned to himself, his world would drop away, and his organism must sense this at some level. We call this the anxiety of object loss. Isn't this anxiety then a natural organismic fear of annihilation? Again, there are many who look at this as a very relative manner, 
matter. They believe that if the mother has done her job in a warm and dependable way, the child's natural anxieties and guilt will develop in a moderate way, and he will be able to place them firmly under the control of his developing personality. The child who has good maternal experiences will develop a sense of basic security and will not be subject to morbid fears of losing support or of being annihilated or the like. As he grows up to understand death rationally, by the age of 9 or 10, he will accept it as part of his worldview. But the idea will not uh, poison his self-confident attitude towards life. The psychiatrist Rheingold says categorically that annihilation anxiety is not part of the child's natural experience, but is engendered in him by bad experiences with a depriving mother. This theory puts the whole burden of anxiety onto the child's nurture and not his nature. Another psychiatrist in a less extreme vein sees the fear of death as greatly heightened by the child's experiences with his parents by their hostile denial of his life impulses and more generally by the antagonism of society to human freedom and self-expansiveness. As we will see later on, this view is very popular today in the widespread movement toward unrepressed living the urge to a new freedom for natural biological urges, a new attitude of pride and joy in the body, the abandonment of shame, guilt, and self-hatred. From this point of view, fear of death is something that society creates and at the same time uses against the person to keep him in submission. The psychiatrist Maloney talked about it as a, quote, culture mechanism and Marcuse as an ideology. Norman O'Brown, in a vastly influential book that we shall discuss at some length, went so far as to say that there could be a birth and development of the child in a, quote, second innocence that would be free of the fear of death because it would not deny natural vitality and would leave the child fully open to physical living. It is easy to see that those who have had bad early experiences will be most morbidly fixated on the anxiety of death. And if by chance they grow up to be philosophers, they will probably make the idea a central dictum of their thought, as did Schopenhauer, who both hated his mother and went on to pronounce death as, quote, the muse of philosophy. If you've had, if you have a sour character, structure, or especially tragic experiences, then you are bound to be pessimistic. One psychologist remarked to me that the whole idea of the fear of death was an import by existentialists and Protestant theologians who had been scarred by their European experiences or who carried around the extra weight of a Calvinist and Lutheran heritage of life denial. Even the distinguished psychologist, Gardner Murphy, seems to lean to this school and urges us to study the person who exhibits the fear of death, who places anxiety at the center of his thought. And Murphy asks why the living of life in love and joy cannot also be regarded as real and basic. 
the morbidly minded argument. The healthy minded argument just discussed is one side of the picture of the accumulated research and opinion on the problem of the fear of death, but there is another side. A large body of people would agree with these observations on early experience and would admit that experiences may heighten natural anxieties and later fears. But these people would also claim very strongly that nevertheless the fear of death is natural and is present in everyone, that it is the basic fear that influences all others, a fear from which no one is immune, no matter how disguised it may be. William James spoke very early for this school, and with his usual colorful realism, he called death, quote, the worm at the core of man's pretension to happiness. No less a student of human nature than Max Scheller thought that all men must have some kind of certain intuition of this, quote, worm at the core, whether they admitted it or not. Countless other authorities, some of whom we shall parade in the following pages, belong to this school. Students of the stature of Freud, many of his close circle, and serious researchers who are not psychoanalysts. What are we to make of a dispute in which there are two distinct camps? Both studded with distinguished authorities. Jacques Chorone goes so far as to say that it is questionable whether it will ever be possible to decide whether the fear of death is or is not the basic anxiety. In matters like this, then, the most that one can do is to take sides, to give an opinion based on the authorities that seem to him most compelling and to present some of the compelling arguments. I frankly side with this second school. In fact, this whole book is a network of arguments based on the universality of the fear of death or, quote, terror, as I prefer to call it, in order to convey how all-consuming it is when we look at it full in the face. The first document that I want to present and linger on is a paper written by the noted psychoanalyst Gregory Zilborg. It is an especially penetrating essay that for succinctness and scope, has not been much improved upon, even though it appeared several decades ago. Zilberg says that most people think death's fear is absent because it rarely shows its true face. But he argues that underneath all appearances, fear of death is universally present. For behind the sense of insecurity in the face of danger, behind the sense of discouragement and depression, there always lurks the basic fear of death, complex elaborations, and manifests itself in many indirect ways. No one is free of the fear of death. The anxiety neuroses, the various phobic states, even a considerable number of depressive suicidal states, and many schizophrenias amply demonstrate the ever-present fear of death which becomes woven into the major conflicts of the given psychopathological conditions. We may take for granted that the fear of death is always present in our mental functioning. Hadn't James said the same thing earlier in his own way? 
quote, let sanguine healthy-mindedness do its best with its strange power of living in the moment and ignoring and forgetting. Still, the evil background is really there to be thought of. And the skull will grin in. The difference in these two statements is not so much in the imagery and style as in the fact that Zilberg comes almost a half century later and is based on that much more real clinical work, not only on philosophical speculation or personal intuition. But it also continues the straight line of development from James and the post-Darwinians who saw the fear of death as a biological and evolutionary problem. Here I think he is on very sound ground, and I especially like the way he puts the case. Zilberg points out that the fear is actually an expression of the instinct of self-preservation, which functions as a constant drive to maintain life and to master the dangers that threaten life. Such constant expenditure of psychological energy on the business of preserving life would be impossible if fear of death were not as constant. The very term self-preservation implies an effort against some force of disintegration. The effective aspect of this is fear, fear of death. In other words, the fear of death must be present behind all our normal functioning in order for the organism to be armed toward self-preservation. But the fear of death cannot be present constantly in one's mental functioning, else the organism could not function. Silberg continues, if this fear were as constantly conscious, we could be in, we should be enabled to function normally. It must be properly repressed to keep us living with any modicum of comfort. We know very well that to repress means more than to put away and to forget that which was put away in the place where we put it. It means also to maintain a constant psychological effort to keep the lid on and inwardly never relax our watchfulness. And so we can understand what seems like an impossible paradox. Her present fear of death in the normal biological functioning of our instinct of self-preservation as well as our utter obliviousness to this fear in our conscious life. Therefore, in normal times, we move about actually without ever believing in our own death, as if we fully believed in our own corporeal immortality. We are intent on mastering death. A man will say, of course, that he knows he will die someday, but he does not really care. He's having a good time with living, and he doesn't think about death and doesn't care to bother about it. But this is purely intellectual, verbal admission. The affect of fear is repressed. And from biology and evolution is basic and has to be taken seriously. I don't see how it can be left out of any discussion. Animals, in order to survive, have had to be protected by fear responses in relation not only to other animals, but to nature itself. They had to see the real relationship of their limited powers to the dangerous world in which they were immersed. Reality and fear go together naturally, as the human infant is in an even more exposed and helpless situation 
It is foolish to assume that the fear response of animals would have disappeared in such a weak and highly sensitive species. It is more reasonable to think that it was instead heightened as some of the early Darwinians thought. Early men who were most afraid were those who were most realistic about their situation in nature. And they passed on to their offspring a realism that had a high... The result was the emergence of man as we know him, a hyper-anxious animal who constantly invents reasons for anxiety even where there are none. The argument from psychoanalysis is less speculative and has to be taken even more seriously. It showed us something about the child's inner world that we had never realized, namely that it was more filled with terror the more the child was different from other animals. We could say that fear is programmed into the lower animals by ready-made instincts. An animal who has no instincts has no programmed fear. Man's fears are fashioned out of the ways in which he perceives the world. Now, what is unique about the child's perception of the world? For one thing, the extreme confusion of cause and effect relationships. For another, extreme unreality about the limits of his own powers. The child lives in a situation of utter dependence. And when his needs are met, it must seem to him that he has magical powers, real omnipotence. If he experiences pain, hunger, or discomfort, all he has to do is to scream and he's relieved and lulled by gentle, loving sounds. He is a magician and a telepath to imagine, and the world turns to his desires. But now, the penalty for such perception. In a magical world where things cause other things to happen just by a mere thought or a look of displeasure, anything can happen to anyone. When the child experiences inevitable and real frustrations from his parents, he directs hate and destructive feelings towards them, and he has no way of knowing that malevolent feelings cannot be fulfilled by the same magic as were his other wishes. Psychoanalysts believe that this confusion is the main cause of guilt and helplessness in the child. In his very fine essay, Wall summed up this paradox. Socialization processes for all children are painful and frustrating, and hence no child escapes forming hostile death wishes towards his socializers. Therefore, none escape the fear of personal death in either direct or symbolic form. Repression is usually immediate and effective, end quote. The child is too weak to take responsibility for all this destructive feeling, and he can't control the magical execution of his desires. This is what we mean by an immature ego, the child doesn't have the sure ability to organize his perceptions and his relationship to the world. He can't control his own activities, and he doesn't have sure command over the acts of others. He thus has no real control over the magical cause and effect that he senses, either inside himself or outside in nature and in others. His destructive wishes could explode. His parents' wishes likewise. 
the forces of nature are confused externally and internally. And for a weak ego, this fact makes for quantities of exaggerated potential power and added terror. The result is that the child, at least some of the time, lives with an inner sense of chaos that other animals are immune to. Ironically, even when the child makes out real cause and effect relationships, they become a burden to him because he overgeneralizes them. One such generalization is what the psychoanalysts call the, quote, Italian principle. The child crushes insects, sees the cat eat a mouse and make it vanish, joins with the family to make a pet rabbit disappear into their interiors, and so on. He comes to know something about the power relations of the world, but can't give them relative value. The parents could eat him and make him vanish, and he could likewise eat them. When the father gets a fierce glow in his eyes as he clubs a rat, the watching child might also expect to be clubbed, especially if he has been thinking bad magical thoughts. I don't want to seem to make an exact picture of processes that are still unclear to us or to make out that all children live in the same world and have the same problems. Also, I wouldn't want to make the child's world seem more lurid than it really is most of the time. But I think it is important to show the painful contradictions that must be present in it at least some of the time and to show how fantastic a world it surely is for the first few years of the child's life. Perhaps then we could understand better why Zilberg said that the fear of death, quote, undergoes the most complex elaborations and manifests itself in many indirect ways, end quote. Or, as Wall so perfectly put it, death is a complex symbol and not any particular sharply defined thing to the child. The child's concept of death is not a single thing, but it is rather a composite of mutually contradictory paradoxes. And death itself is not only a state, but a complex symbol, the significance of which will vary from one person to another and from one culture to another. We can understand, too, why children have their recurrent nightmares, their universal phobias of insects and mean dogs, in their tortured interiors radiate complex symbols of many inadmissible realities, terror of the world, the horror of one's own wishes, the fear of vengeance by the parents, the disappearance of things, one's lack of control over anything, really. It's too much for any animal to take, but the child has to take it. And so he wakes up screaming with almost punctual regularity during the period when his weak ego is in the process of consolidating things, the disappearance of the fear of death. Yet the nightmares become more and more widely spaced, and some children have more than others. We are back again to the beginning of our discussion to those who do not believe that the fear of death is normal, who think that it is an erotic exaggeration that draws on bad early experiences. Otherwise, they say 
How explain that so many people, the vast majority, seem to survive the flurry of childhood nightmares and go on to live a healthy, more or less optimistic life, untroubled by death? As Montaigne said, the peasant has a profound indifference, patience towards death and the sinister, sinister side of life. And if we say that this is because of his stupidity, then, quote, let's all learn from stupidity, end quote. Today, when we know more than Montaigne, we would say, quote, let's all learn from repression, end quote. But the moral would have just as much weight. Repression takes care of the complex symbol of death for most people. But its disappearance doesn't mean that the fear was never there. The argument of those who believe in the universality of the innate terror of death rests its case mostly on what we know about how effective repression is. The argument can probably never be cleanly decided. If you claim that a concept is not present because it is repressed, you can't lose. It is not a fair game intellectually because you always hold the trump card. This type of argument makes psychoanalysts psychoanalysis seem unscientific to many people. The fact that its proponents can claim that someone denies one of their concepts because he represses his consciousness of its truth. But repression is not a magical word for winning argument. It is a real phenomenon, and we have been able to study many of its workings. This study gives it legitimacy as a scientific concept and makes it more or less dependable ally in our argument. For one thing, there is a growing body of research trying to get at the consciousness of death denied by repression that uses psychological tests, such as measuring galvanic skin responses. It strongly suggests that underneath the most bland exterior lurks the universal anxiety, the, quote, worm at the core, end quote. For another thing, there is nothing like shocks in the real world to jar loose repression. Recently, psychiatrists reported an increase in anxiety neuroses in children as a result of the earth tremors in Southern California. For these children, the discovery that life really includes cataclysmic danger was too much for their still imperfect denial systems. Hence, open outbursts of anxiety. With adults, we see this manifestation of anxiety in the face of impending catastrophe, where it takes the form of panic. Recently, several people suffered broken limbs and other injuries after forcing open their airplane safety door during takeoff and jumping from the wing to the ground. The incident was triggered by the backfire of an engine. Obviously, underneath these harmless noises, other things are rumbling in the creature. But even more important, repression works. It is not simply a negative force opposing life energies. It lives on life energies and uses them creatively. I mean that fears are naturally absorbed by expansive organismic striving. 
nature seems to have built into organisms an innate healthy-mindedness. It expresses itself in self-delight, in the pleasure of unfolding one's capacities into the world, in the incorporation of things in that world, and in feeding on its limitless experiences. This is a lot of very positive experience, and when a powerful organism moves with it, it gives contentment. As Santayana once put it, a lion must feel more secure that God is on his side than, than a gazelle. On the most elemental level, the organism works actively against its own fragility by seeking to expand and perpetuate itself in living experience. Instead of shrinking, it moves toward more life. Also, it does one thing at a time, avoiding needless distractions from all absorbing activity. In this way, it would seem fear of death can be carefully ignored or actually absorbed in the life-expanding processes. Occasionally, we seem to see such a vital organism on the human level. I'm thinking of the portrait of Zorba the Greek, drawn by Nikos Kazantzakis. Zorba was an ideal of the nonchalant victory of all-absorbing daily passion over timidity and death, and he purged others in his life-affirming flame. But the author himself was no Zorba, which is partly why the character Zorba rang a bit false, nor are most other men. Still, everyone enjoys a working amount of basic narcissism, even though it is not a lion. The child who is well-nourished and loved develops, as we said, a sense of magical omnipotence, a sense of his own indestructibility, a feeling of proven power and secure support. He can imagine himself deep down to be eternal. We might say that his repression of of the idea of his own death is made easy for him because he is fortified against it in his very narcissistic vitality probably helped Freud to say that the unconscious does not know death. Anyway, we know the basic narcissism is increased when one's childhood experiences have been securely life-supporting and warmly enhancing to the sense of self, to the feeling of being really special, truly number one in creation. The result is that some people have more of what the psychoanalyst Leon J. Saul has aptly called inner sustainment. It is a sense of bodily confidence in the face of experience that sees the person more easily through severe life crises and even sharp personality changes. It almost seems to take the place of the directive instincts of lower animals. One can't help thinking of Freud again who had more inner sustainment than most, than most men. Thanks to his mother and a favorable early environment, he knew the confidence and courage that it gave to a man, and he himself faced up to life and to a fatal cancer with stoic heroism. Again, we have evidence that the complex symbol of fear of death would be very variable in its intensity. It would be, as Wall concluded, 
quote, profoundly dependent upon the nature and the vicissitudes of the developmental process, end quote. But I want to be careful not to make too much of a natural vitality and inner sustainment. As we will see in Chapter 6, even the unusual, usually favored Freud suffered his whole life from phobias and from death anxiety. And he came to fully perceive the world under the aspect natural terror. I don't believe that the complex symbol of death is ever absent, no matter how much vitality and inner sustainment a person has. Even more, if we say that these powers make repression easy and natural, we are only saying the half of it. Actually, they get their very power from repression. Psychiatrists argue that the fear of death varies in intensity depending on the developmental process. And I think that one important reason for this variability is that the fear is transmuted in that process. If the child has had a very favorable upbringing, it only serves all the better to hide the fear of death. After all, repression is made possible by the natural identification of the child with the powers of his parents. If he has been well cared for, Identification comes easily and solidly, and his parents' powerful triumph over death automatically becomes his. What is more natural to banish one's fears than to live on delegated powers? And what does the whole growing up period signify if not the giving over of one's life project? I'm going to be talking about these things all the way through this book and do not want to develop them in this introductory discussion. What we will see is that man cuts out for himself a manageable world. He throws himself into action uncritically, unthinkingly. He accepts the cultural programming that turns his nose where he is supposed to look the world off in one piece as a giant would, but in small, manageable pieces as a beaver does. He uses all kinds of techniques, which we call the, quote, character defenses. He learns not to expose himself, not to stand out. He learns to embed himself in other power, both of concrete persons and of things and cultural commands. The result is that he comes to exist in the imagined infallibility of the world around him. He doesn't have to have fears when his feet are solidly mired and his life mapped out in a ready-made maze. All he has to do is to plunge ahead in a compulsive style of drivenness in the ways of the world that the child learns and in which he lives later as a kind of grim equanimity the strange power of living in the moment and ignoring and forgetting, as James put it, then Montaigne's peasant isn't troubled until the very end when the angel of death, who has always been sitting on his shoulder, extends his wing. Or at least until he is prematurely startled into dumb awareness like the husbands in John Cassavetti's fine film. At times like this, when the awareness dawns, 
that has always been blotted out by frenetic ready-made activity. We see the transmutation of repression redistilled, so to speak, and the fear of death emerges in pure essence. This is why people have psychotic breaks when repression no longer works, when the forward momentum of activity is no longer possible. Besides, the peasant mentality is far less romantic than Montaigne would have us believe. Equanimity is usually immersed in a style of life that has elements of real madness, and so it protects him. An undercurrent of constant hate and bitterness expressed in feuding, bullying, bickering, and family quarrels, the petty mentality, the self-deprecation, the superstition, the obsessive control of daily life by a strict authoritarianism, and so on. As the title of a recent essay by Joseph Lopreto has it, how would you like to be a peasant? We will also touch upon another large dimension in which the complex symbol of death is transmuted and transcended by man. Recent immortality, the extension of one's being into eternity. Now we can conclude that there are many ways that repression works to calm the anxious human animal so that he need not be anxious at all. I think we have reconciled our two divergent positions on the fear of death the environmental and the innate positions are both part of the same picture. They merge naturally into one another. It all depends from which angle you approach the picture, from the side of the disguises and transmutations of the fear of death or from the side of its apparent absence. I admit with a sense of scientific uneasiness that whatever angle you use, you don't get at the actual fear of death. And so I reluctantly agree with Shoron that argument can probably never be cleanly won. Nevertheless, something very important emerges. There are different images of man that he can draw and choose from. On the one hand, we see a human animal who is partly dead to the world who is most dignified when he shows a certain obliviousness to his fate, when he allows himself to be driven through life, who is most free when he lives in um, secure dependency on powers around him, when he is least in possession of himself. On the other hand, we get an image of a human animal who is overly sensitive to the world, who cannot shut it out, who is on his own meager powers, and who seems least free to move and act, least in possession of himself, and most undignified. Whichever image we choose to identify with depends in large part upon ourselves. Let us then explore and develop these images further to see what they can reveal to us. And I will stop here and continue with Chapter 3 in the next, in a later podcast. 
Thank you for listening. I'll be having some uh, special guests join me very soon for On Being With Moo. And until next time, many peace and blessings. Soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all. Until the pain is so big, you feel nothing at all. Working class zero is something to be Working class zero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school They hate if you're clever and despise the fool So crazy you can't follow the rules Working class zero is something to be Working class zero is something to be When they tortured and scared you for 20 odd years
you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. 